the Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Uh, good morning, everyone. Our first case is State versus Farvin, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is Marissa Jensen. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the state in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. The Court of Appeals erred in granting defendant a new trial and reversing the trial court's ruling that defendant forfeited his right to counsel through his actions leading up to his trial in this case. The trial court made findings of fact that support its conclusion that defendant forfeited his right to counsel in this case. Those findings of fact are supported by evidence in the record and are conclusive and binding on appeal. The Court of Appeals majority failed to give the proper deference to the trial court's finding of fact. Defendant's conduct and the evidence in the record supports the trial court's findings in this case that defendant forfeited his right to counsel. The trial court found that based on defendant's actions from the time that the third attorney in this case, Merritt Wagner, was appointed in May of 2017 and the time that Sean Evans was appointed in September of 2017, the trial court found that the defendant forfeited his right to have an attorney represent him at trial, that his actions were willful, and that he had obstructed and delayed the court proceedings. These findings are entitled to deference per this court's opinion in State v. Simpkins, um, which was made clear in footnote three, and the evidence in the record in this case supports those findings. Starting even on page 26 of the transcript from the April 23rd hearing, the morning of the trial, um, when standby counsel, who was the fifth attorney in this case, uh, Mr. Merirata, stated that the defendant has not been communicating, he is not willing to work with me, even with discovery, we've had serious communication problems. This is also demonstrated uh, in the record at page 21 and 26 through counsel's motions to withdraw. Um, at page 21 in the record is Mr. Merritt Wagner's motion to withdraw. And his motion details the fact that his relationship with the defendant had been irreparably severed. Um, and more instructive for this board, I think, is page 26 in the record, um, which shows Mr. Sean Evans' mo motion to withdraw. Um, and in that motion, he details in paragraph four that defendant has refused to follow or even consider the advice of counsel and will not communicate with counsel about his case or defense. In number five, he states that there has been a complete breakdown of the attorney-client relationship. In their last meeting, the defendant stated to counsel that counsel has lied to him numerous times and that the defendant has also refused to accept written correspondence from counsel. Communication has become impossible. The motion also states that the client has expressed a desire to represent himself and indicated that he would reject counsel serving as standby counsel or in any capacity in this case. And I think uh, that that is evidence that is certainly indicative um, and, and supports the trial court's finding in this case that the defendant's actions were willful and that his conduct did amount to obstructing and delaying the court proceedings in this case. Because after all, we know 
that the case had certainly been set for trial several times and that the delay in this case was substantial and significant. The delay was almost a year um, total in trial from, from May 2017 um, until the case was finally called for trial and proceeded to trial on April 23rd of 2018. In addition, you have uh, more evidence pointing, an indicia pointing toward this pattern of behavior. Um, there was testimony specifically, and the state brought this out on page 35 to 37 of the transcript of the April 23rd hearing, there was um, testimony from a detention officer regarding the defendant's behavior leading up to trial in the weeks prior. And I think this is instructive for the court because again, it goes towards showing this pattern of behavior because what that detention officer stated is that the defendant's behavior was not out of the ordinary in the weeks leading up to the trial and that he was not reviewing the materials that were brought to him uh, in his cell um, leading up to this trial. And I think that goes to show, and, and I, I don't want to anticipate what, what defense counsel is going to argue here, but the, the briefs certainly paint a picture of a defendant who was um, diligently preparing for trial. And I would argue to the court that the record and the evidence in the record here goes to paint a different picture. And, and you start seeing this pattern um, of the willful actions that are obstructing and delaying and ultimately amount to um, a substantial delay uh, that, that are interfering with the orderly proceedings of the trial court in this case. Um, Ms. 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 Jensen, let me interrupt you a second and ask you kind of the basic standard of review kind of question here. Uh, you have basically, I think, just set out what the difference in perspectives between the brief that you drafted and the brief that Ms. Osier drafted in terms of what factual I don't want to prejudge it, but picture of the defendant's uh, actions is appropriate. Essentially, the argument seems to be your argument is he was, this was yet, a, yet another attempt to delay uh, Ms. Ozer's description of his conduct is this is a defendant who had real problems and was trying to legitimately redress them. I mean, obviously, if she thinks that's a mischaracterization of her argument, she can correct me. That's the basic question I've got is it looks like pretty clear under Simpkins that uh, whether a forfeiture was proper is a question of law. That's at least the way I read footnote three. Uh, is the purpose for which the defendant acted a question of fact or a question of law? And regardless of what you think it is, tell me why. Your Honor, I think the question of the purpose for which defendant acted is a question of fact. Um, and I think that because as your as your Honor stated, I think the conclusion of law here is ultimately whether the defendant forfeited his right to counsel and whether his conduct reached that level of forfeiture. But I think everything surrounding that, and especially in this case, the way that Judge Gorham laid out all of her findings um, in the transcript, specifically around pages 68 to 71, um, those are all the findings of fact. And I don't think that um, that the subjective intent of the defendant, in other words, I don't think the fact that wh whether he actually subjectively planned to have these actions to, to actually delay the trial court is, is the question here, but it's whether his conduct and the behavior in and of itself amounts to conduct that is willfully obstructing and delaying. 
In, in, in other words, to, to, to repeat what I think you just said and, and tell me if I understood you correctly or not, your argument then is that the actual subjective intent is irrelevant except to the extent that it might bear on something else. The question is, what is the effect? That's correct, Your Honor. That's correct. Can I, can I, and I, Justice Irvin, if you have more questions, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, Feel free, go ahead. Um, just on that point, how do, how is that squared? Well, first of all, you said willful. So, so if, if the actions have to be willful, that, that is some indication of something other than just the impact of the actions. There's some, there's some mental state that goes into something being willful versus involuntary, right? That's, that's correct, Your Honor. And I think that the willful, the term willful would modify the actions and the behavior. Um, right. And so to that end, I, I think it would be, you know, the defendant choosing to take these actions and, 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 you know, carry out these behaviors, not necessarily with with his subjective goal being to willfully delay, um, but but in his behavior, the, the, the behaviors are willful. But but in Simpkins, we said that, and this was based on 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 precedent, that a defendant who engages in serious misconduct may forfeit his constitutional right. And and um, again, talking about egregious conduct, egregious misconduct. And are you suggesting that there's no subjective intent element to misconduct that you can that that, that we don't have to assess whether he was um, improperly trying to delay the case um, as as uh, you would have us believe, or whether he was a defendant struggling to um, understand the law and and in good faith trying to effectively represent himself, um, you would say that that's irrelevant to whether he's engaging in misconduct? Your Honor, the state's position would be, and certainly that is correct as far as, you know, Simpkins, and I, th I think it specifically refers to the Blakeney case as well, you know, when there's this discussion of there is no bright line definition of the degree of misconduct that would justify forfeiture, certainly it has been confined to cases where there's been egregious misconduct, um, but, uh, you know, part of that description, and I think Blakeney specifically fleshes this out, is that you know part, part of this what can be considered egregious conduct is flagrant or extended delaying tactics such as repeatedly firing a series of attorneys and so specifically speaking i think that's what that's sort of the level of uh conduct here certainly it's not a situation where you know there are cases that talk about the defendants who have assaulted attorneys in court or been particularly disruptive in court and there's no contentions here about that that's not the type of case that this is. Certainly, it falls more in line with that consideration expressed in Blakeney, and, and I think Simpkins comments on that part of Blakeney as well, but this flagrant or extended delaying tactic, and, and to your point about um, whether he was in, in good faith representing himself or not, no, the state's position would be that that's certainly not part of the analysis. Um, and even if it was, I, I think that there is the indicia in this particular case on this particular record to show some of that, 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 that it is contrary to um, 
you know, the, the assertions by the defendant that he was doing these things in good faith. And I think I would specifically point towards that um, testimony by the detentions officer about the, the number of times that they noted that they took the materials to him to review and that he declined to review them. And not just that he declined to review them, but that he became upset when they, he realized they were being noted. Um, and he didn't feel as though it should be noted that whether he wanted to review the materials or not. Um, but 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 to answer your question, no, I, I don't think that's part of the analysis under any of these cases or the law as it stands, um, you know, to, to talk about the defendant's subjective intent and what that might have been um, and whether his representations and his arguments were in good faith or not. Um, but certainly. Well, just, go ahead. I'm well, sorry. Just, well, I didn't mean, again, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, just to just to, one last question on this point. Um, even in this case, in assessing whether a defendant's um, seeking new counsel is is um, can be called misconduct. Um, here, there were a couple of his attorneys who themselves sought to withdraw um, because they had other other um, work obligations. So so it seems to me that. A defendant might have might actually, in fact, have a very good reason. So whether the attorney is seeking to withdraw because he can no longer um, handle the case in, in light of his other caseload um, or because there, there is a genuine conflict of interest, that would be a reason why a defendant would seek a new attorney. But that we wouldn't uh, the effect of that, the effect of that action would be to delay. But it wouldn't be something that we would would you does the state submit that that would still be misconduct because the impact was delay, even though there was a completely legitimate and um, important reason for that counsel to no longer represent that defendant. Yes, your honor, and and I would agree. I think the 1st, 2 attorneys in this case, certainly um, withdrew for their own reasons. And then, so you're dealing with sort of the last 3. Um, here in this case, and I think that hypothetically speaking, um, as your honor pointed out, perhaps that's something that could be factored into an analysis in that situation. Um, however, I think that this case is certainly distinguishable from that situation um, because of the sort of indicia here um, that that was actually not not the case. And, and I think I want to point that out because the majority opinion, the Court of Appeals opinion, actually. Um, tries to to make this sort of distinction. And I think on page 30 or 31, the majority states that um, neither of the two attorneys who requested to withdraw because of their relationship with defendant appeared to have requested to withdraw because the defendant was refusing to participate in preparing a defense or question the legitimacy of the proceeding against him, but instead due to differences related to the preparation of defendant's defense. And, it, and the majority sort of used that to, to distinguish this case from State v. Boyd. But I think that that assertion is actually incorrect based on the record here. And I think that that's principally because of um, what I pointed out earlier about Mr. Evans' motion to withdraw at record page 26, which, which very clearly details the fact that the defendant has refused to follow or even consider advice of counsel and will not communicate with counsel about his case or defense at all. Um, and, and so I think that there is a difference there and, and the, major, the majority's assertion there that this was just based on, on differences in preparation to the defense is sort of directly contradicted by 
what's detailed in Mr. Evans' motion to withdraw there. Now, it's not detailed as clearly in Mr. Wagner's motion to withdraw at record page 21, but his motion still does state that the defendant, um, the, the uh, relationship with the defendant has been irreparably severed. Um, and I do think that even Mr. Medarata's, um, that portion from the transcript on page 26 of the, the transcript from the morning of April 23rd, even uh, standby counsel stated that he has not been communicating, he is not willing to work with me, even with the discovery, we've had serious communication problems. And so certainly I think, hypothetically speaking, there is potential that that uh, sort of could play a part in the analysis. But here, I think if, if, if the court were going to take that into consideration, I think it would be particularly instructive to um, that the evidence in the record does support the trial court's findings of fact that these actions uh, by the defendant were willful and did amount ultimately to obstructing and delaying. Um, and I do, you know, when the majority points that out or makes that assertion in the, in the opinion um, to sort of distinct, distinguish this case from State v. Boyd, um, I would argue to the court that this case is actually more similar to State v. Boyd um, than it is distinguishable. And certainly that's a the Court of Appeals case from 2009 uh, where the Court of Appeals found no error. In that case, the defendant had fired two different attorneys and the defendant was, quote, totally uncooperative with undersigned counsel to the extent that said counsel was unable to prepare any type of defense. Um, and that case obviously stood for the proposition that a defendant may lose his right to counsel when the right to counsel is perverted for the purpose of obstructing and delaying a trial. Um, and the court in that case obviously concluded that the defendant there did willfully obstruct and delay court proceedings by refusing to cooperate with either of his appointed attorneys and insisting that his case would not be tried. And certainly here, the, the conduct of the defendant um, is actually very similar. And, and certainly he had only technically fired two attorneys, but he was in the process of trying to replace his third attorney who was currently appointed as standby counsel as late as when the trial began on the morning of April 23rd of 2018. And I also want to point out the fact that, you know, in Judge Gorham's extensive findings, the fact that she made, um, she pointed out those three subsequent hearing dates um, after, and, and I also want to point out for the court that this is also a case where there is a formally executed signed waiver by the defendant that he executed on December 28th of 2017, um, and that appears at, on, in the record at page 33, and there was also a full colloquy conducted pursuant to 15A-1242. Um, and, and Judge Gorham lays out the fact that defendant had three subsequent hearings after the after he formally waived his right to counsel. He had a hearing on January 28th of 2018, another hearing on March 26th of 2018, and yet another hearing before Judge Gorham on April 3rd of 2018. And Judge Gorham states that he had the opportunity at each one of those hearings to express any type of desire um, that he had to be represented by counsel and he didn't do that um, and so i think that's instructive i think that's evidence unique to this case that should be taken into consideration as well in the overall analysis um, and certainly even once you look at those three hearing dates that occurred after the defendant unequivocally expressed his desire to represent himself uh, multiple times you also 
see that on the morning, the actual morning of April 23rd, when he expressed his desire to have an attorney, it was only after he first expressed the desire to replace his standby counsel. So his first request on the morning of April 23rd was to replace his standby counsel. Um, it was not immediately, he didn't come into the courtroom and say, you know, to the court, uh, at this point, I feel like I need an attorney. Um, he at first asked, petitioned the court to replace his standby counsel. Um, it's also significant that back on April 3rd, he had made a motion to continue and that had been denied. Um, and so once we get once he gets into court on April 23rd, um, we have this behavior of asking to replace standby counsel. And when that request was denied, um, only then did, did the answer change to that he wanted to be represented by counsel at that time. And so I think all of that is instructive and all of that um, certainly rises to the level of obstructing and delaying court proceedings. Um, and I, I think the dissent cited actually um, State v. Curitan, which is a Court of Appeals case that, that states forfeiture results when the state's interest in maintaining an orderly trial schedule and the defendant's negligence, indifference, or possibly purposeful delaying tactic combine to justify a forfeiture of defendant's right to counsel. Um, and so I think that that is instructive here. And I, I think that certainly if we're looking at this case in comparison with Simpkins, um, this defendant's conduct rises to a level um, much higher than, than the defendant's conduct in Simpkins. And so I, I think that's instructive for this court. Um, I think certainly that Blakeney, there was a lot of comparison by the Court of Appeals majority to the Blakeney case, but certainly Blakeney is, this case is distinguishable from Blakeney in the fact that number one, there actually was a formally executed signed waiver by the defendant. I think in Blakeney, um, part of the court's analysis that they centered on was the fact that that defendant had not been warned of the consequences of representing himself. Um, and, and certainly in Simpkins, I believe that was the case too. There was no waiver um, and the defendant had not been apprised of the consequences of self-representation. And certainly that's a big part of this case uh, that the defendant ex did express this unequivocal desire to represent himself. Um, Counsel, if, if I can um, uh, interrupt you for, for just a moment. Um, no one would disagree that the defendant has a right to counsel, um, but, but the idea of forfeiture means, or, or at least implies, uh, that the defendant can take some action uh, or fail to take an action uh, to secure that right. Uh, what right, what responsibilities or obligations does a defendant have to exercise the right to counsel? Your Honor, um, I, I think that certainly the case law talks about either that a defendant um, may represent himself or may exercise his right to counsel um, and that, you know, the line of cases that deals with waiver would say that if a defendant expresses this unequivocal, a desire to represent himself and executes a waiver of counsel, that that waiver is good unless and until um, he expresses a desire and shows good cause to withdraw his waiver. Um, and so I think. But, but before you get to that point, during the course of representation by appointed counsel, what obligations or duties does a defendant have uh, to make sure that he has secured that right? Well, 
certainly, Your Honor, I, I think that, um, you know, participating in his defense um, and, and communicating with counsel um, is, is an important part. I don't know that I would call it an obligation by the defendant. I don't know that the case law lays that out as as sort of duties of a defendant, but where if it does, if and when it does get to the point where there's a complete breakdown of the relationship with the, the defense attorney, I don't think, I think there that's a, um, a bypass and I don't think that um, you would be able to move forward at that point. So I think that at the very bottom line, there's some sort of obligation to participate in some meaningful way in, in, uh, in his defense. Um, right. so, so the withdrawal from Mason and nicely uh, are not attributable to, and therefore not uh, uh, a forfeiture by the defendant of his right to counsel. That's correct, Your Honor. Yes, the state does not contend that the withdrawal of the first two attorneys in any way even actually contributed uh, to the behaviors that ultimately led to the finding of forfeiture by the trial court. Um, the state would not contend that. It's certainly the, the conduct of the defendant and the behaviors and events uh, after Mr. Wagner was appointed in May of 2017 um, and leading up to the trial that, that established that. Um, conduct that rises to the level of forfeiture. And if there aren't any further questions, I will go ahead and reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Ms. Barrett. <clears throat> Oops. Unmute. Please support. My name is Marilyn Ozer. I'm here this morning representing the appellee. Kashan Harvin. Kashan, as this court knows, was only 17 when he was taken out of a classroom and arrested for the, for the murder. He then spent the next three years in custody, which isn't uh, a way anyone would recommend becoming more mature. What's important is what Justice Berger just uh, explained. The first two attorneys, Kashan had no problem with, and they did an excellent job, especially Mr. Nicely. He filed a series of motions, which are in, on, in the record on appeal. It was not until the second attorney had, I'm sure in the way a 17 or a teenager would think had deserted him, that he began having trouble with his attorneys. But what the state has not mentioned, and which I think is very significant, is that in the hearing with Judge Watson on December 12th, that court found, this is on page 10 of December 12th, the court in its discretion does not find at this point in time that Mr. Harvin has vacated his right to request counsel, nor that any of his actions have forfeited his opportunity to have a signed counsel. That's on page 10. And what Blakeney and Simpkins both say is there has to, before you can forfeit counsel, you have to have some sort of warning that your behavior might lead to forfeiture. So here's a Superior Court judge telling Kishan Harvin that nothing he has done. And remember at this point, he is already uh, ask the two counsel be withdrawn. 
the two counsel that the state is now depending on to say the contact forfeited his right? Well, a superior court judge has told him, no, it, it hadn't. And then Judge Borham, Borham does come in and basically overrules the prior superior court judge, which as this court knows, you cannot do. So there was no warning of forfeiture. And going to Justice Earl's uh, questioning about subjective intent, of course it's important why a defendant might act asked to have counsel withdrawn um, because you have to see the purpose of his actions. And in this case, we have uh, what began as a child according to law. By the time of the trial, he's an adult, but he was a child to begin with, trying to cope with a very complicated first-degree murder case. And the findings of fact by Judge Gorham do not reflect this. In fact, several of them are incorrect. For one thing, she- Ms. Ezra, now this is probably as good a time as any to ask you essentially the same question that I asked to a colleague. What is the, is the inquiry that we have before us one of fact, one of law? What role do the trial court's findings have in our analysis is the purpose for which uh, the defendant acted a question of fact, a question of law. That's a whole stream of consciousness series of questions, but can you help me with some or all of those subjects? It's a question of law, whether or not the defendant has forfeited his right to. I, I think we, I think we all agree on that. The, I think the question then becomes, you just argued uh, that that of course the subjective opinion of the, of the subjective motivation for the defendant is relevant. Is that a question of fact or a question of law? Well, I believe it has to be a question of fact. And the fa facts can be shown in the courtroom if the defendant is obstructive, if he's impolite, if he's not listening to instructions. We've all seen cases where uh, the judge can't even control the defendant. In this case, he was trying to be very polite. He was trying to follow the directives of the court. If the, if the, if the, so we've got a series of findings by the trial court. You've said you don't think some of them are supported by the record, and you've given the specifics in your brief. To the extent that the trial court's findings are supported, or to the extent that we let me just stop there. To the extent that there's adequate support for the trial court's findings or they're uncontested, what effect do those findings have on the way we ought to look at this case? Well, I don't agree with the, uh, Gor Judge Gorm's findings. And the findings, of fact, are egregiously incorrect. For example, the, she states that none of Mr. Harvin's prior attorneys questioned his competence. Well, that's incorrect. Mr. Nicely testified in front of Judge Gorham that he had uh, questions. Did, she asked, during that time period, did you have any concerns regarding Mr. Harvin's competency to proceed at trial? Mr. Nicely responds, 
So that's a complicated question. Well, before we get into that, I would express some reluctance to discuss anything that Mr. Harvin and I had conversations about due to attorney-client privilege. The court, yes. Answer, so without giving the basis for everything, I will say that I did at least contemplate filing a motion regarding his competency and determined at least at that time not to file the motion. That's transcript pages 48 to 49. So at that time, uh, he, he decided not to file it. We don't know why. It could be because he knew he was about to leave. It could be because he thought there was a good plea on the table and that having his client uh, found incompetent was not in his client's interest. We don't know why, but we do know that it was a situation in which a defense attorney needed to explore the competency. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me ask my question another another way. I mean, I understand that you contend that a number of the trial court's findings or a lot of the trial court's findings, I don't want to get into arguing over the relative percentage of them, uh, are, are not supported. But we do have a finding that uh, we have a statement by the trial court that says, quote, his actions have been willful and he has obstructed and delayed these court proceedings. That's what the trial court said. Is that a finding of fact, a conclusion of law, or something else? What, 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 how would you characterize it, and what effect does it have for purposes of our review in this case? That's clearly a conclusion of law, right. not a finding of fact. It might be based on the findings of facts that she made, but it's a conclusion of law. And it's a conclusion of law that is based in part on one of her findings that he has no mental disability. And that was after he told Judge Gorham that he had ADHD. She misinterprets what ADHD is, finds instead that he seems smart enough, he can answer questions, he seems to have uh, read some of the motions and some of the law. That's not what ADHD is. That's an inability to focus and to simulate quantities of information. So her conclusion of law that the his his request for uh, for a new attorney was obstructive is based on an inaccurate finding of fact that he did not have a mental disability. So that's, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Justice Irvin, but. You are, that's that's why, why I've not interrupted you to ask further questions. Thank you, thank you, Ms. Leisure. I, I think it's important for this court to understand exactly what was going on before uh, considering obstruction. I mean, just, Close your eyes, metaphorically at least, and remember what it was like in, in when you were lawyers practicing law and you're getting ready for a big trial. And this is a big trial. This is this child's life that we have in question. What do you see? Uh, either you or your law partner has a table stacked with boxes. Someone is trying to get the various testimonies of all the witnesses together they're making up 
lists of answers, uh, questions and answers. In this case, there's not only a thousand pages of discovery to be spread out on that table. There's also 2,000 pages of transcript from the co-defendant. And uh, the judge and the states want to kind of just blur that over. But that's the most important thing for a defense attorney, to read and digest 2,000 pages of a co-defendant's um, testimony. You would go through that. You would pull out the testimony of each witness. You would compare it with that witness's statements. You would have a whole list of questions to show uh, where the differences are. So instead, we have a teenager sitting in a jail cell with, I guess he's been given boxes of discovery, but he doesn't have a, a fancy computer software program to figure out um, which witnesses where, where the statements are, what questions to do. I mean, it's just, I cannot imagine how a 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old sitting in a jail cell could possibly deal with 3,000 pages of discovery and transcript. So to say it was willful for him to come in in April, which is three months later, after even his standby counsel says he had not been able to digest the material. Uh, there's just no way that if, if you want to look at this subjectively, he could have been prepared. And I hope this court does not miss footnote number four in uh, the opinion below, in which the uh, court comments on the standby counsel's statement to Judge Gorham that he was not ready, he was not prepared to go to trial. And the opinion suggests that that alone was a reason to grant a continuous and appoint another standby counsel. Well, counsel, was, if, if I could interrupt you, I, and I apologize, um, was your client communicating with that standby counsel at the time? According to the testimony at that hearing, they were having trouble communicating. And it's sort of, if you look at the, uh, exactly what Kashan says about the trouble, it kind of plays out. He wants to have a motion to suppress uh, based on how he was arrested in the, in the schoolroom. And if you look at the record, Mr. Nicely did file a motion to suppress, listening all those facts, attaching an affidavit, that motion was never retracted, so it's still in the file. It's still a good motion. So after Kishan is told he has to represent himself, and they start the motion hearing, he says, I want to do a motion to suppress, and starts to talk about it. The prosecutor stands up and says, well, dismiss this Judge Gorham because there's no written motion. Well, there is a written motion with an affidavit. And at that point, if standby counsel had done his job, he would have stood up and said, no, here's the motion and let's hear it. And also what standby counsel would have done is helped 
Kishant Harvin subpoena the witnesses that were needed for that motion to suppress. And that's what, if you read it, that's what Kishan is saying he's having trouble with the standby counsel, because what he wants done is some witnesses subpoenaed. Uh, he wants to go back into the record. He wants to do the motion to suppress. And well, does, doesn't your client have an obligation to communicate with that counsel? Well, he is communicating. I, I'm sorry. He is asking that the motion to suppress be prepared. And according to Kassan, in his testimony on April 23rd, the standby counsel would not help him with that. And we know that that is probably accurate because the standby counsel, when the state asks Judge Gorham to dismiss it because there's no written motion, doesn't say anything, indicating that he doesn't know that there's a motion to suppress in the file. And all through the trial, standby counsel never says anything. And according to uh, Freda, you have to, uh, standby counsel is supposed to be prepared to take over. According to IDS rules, he's supposed to be prepared. He tells Judge Gorham that he's not prepared. So how, how can they go forward? Here's standby counsel telling the court, I'm not prepared to go forward. And that's ignored. And if you read the trial transcript, clearly he was not prepared. He never, when uh, the state is introducing hearsay after hearsay, and the majority opinion below points this out, neither standby, standby counsel does not stand up, does not seem to indicate to Kishan that he needs to object, and Judge Gorham never sui sponte suggests uh, that this is hearsay. Instead, she rules for the state whenever Kishan Harvin tries to get some evidence in. So let, let me ask you, you mentioned that uh, Mr. Mason and Mr. Nicely both did um, excellent jobs for uh, the defendant. Uh, and the trial court indicated that the discovery was provided uh, to the defendant by, by both of those attorneys. Uh, and at least one of the attorneys, according to the trial court, explained uh, the discovery uh, to the defendant. What do we make of defendant's claim on the day of trial that he did not get discovery? That's, that's another finding that's not exactly accurate. Neither Mr. Mason nor Mr. Nicely stated that they gave him discovery. The closest they come to it is Mr. Mason saying, I don't remember uh, what one of the following attorneys, I guess Evan said, well, of course not. That would be volumes and volumes of transcript. Um, I didn't cart those over. Clearly, if Mr. Mason had brought volumes and volumes of discovery or copied them and brought them into the jail, he would have remembered. And all he can say is, I don't remember. Mr. Nicely did not say he gave him discovery. So is, are you saying now that those attorneys didn't do an excellent job? No, I, I'm saying that at that point, when they were representing the client, they didn't bring the discovery into the jail cell. And that is standard practice. If you bring discovery into a jail cell, it becomes the property of all the other inmates in the jail. You, you just don't do it as long as you are representing the client. 
maybe you give him snippets of it, but you wouldn't bring in a cartload of discovery and expect the New Hanover County Jail to find a place for it. It just, it's not standard practice. It was only when he became uh, representing himself that it was necessary to get him that discovery. And that discovery was voluminous, not only all the paper in the transcript, uh, that state refers to 24 discs. And I'm sure this court has tried to listen to some of those discs that you get from um, the state. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of skill, but you have to be able to sit there and write out yourself sort of a transcript of those, those um, discs which means you listen for five minutes, you stop, you go back and listen for five minutes, try to write it down. Now there's 24 of those CDs that somehow Kashan Harvin is supposed to be able to deal with, plus the volumes of discovery, plus the 2000 pages of transcript. It just wasn't possible. And it wasn't possible for uh, standby counsel. He, he admitted that. In the three months that he had the case, he wasn't prepared. I'm just not sure if that answers your question, Justice Berger. Thank you. So I also want to mention to the court that since the briefs were filed, or at the time my brief was filed, new evidence was discovered based on this court's remand to New Hanover County to find out whether or not Carvin Harshan was competent. At that point, Judge Gorham found that he was not competent to withdraw uh, to represent himself on appeal. But one of the most important findings back in front of Judge Gorham when it was remanded was that Karshan Harvin was diagnosed with ADHD for six years and he was medicated during those six years. And while he was medicated, his grades were okay. He was able to cope. As soon as he was off medication, he couldn't cope. He would get C's and D's. So that shows exactly how critical it was for this young man to be medicated. And for Judge Gorham, when she makes her findings of fact back on April 23rd, that he suffered from no mental disability, when he had told her that he had ADHD, that he required medication for ADHD, that was not only an incorrect finding of fact, it was an error of law because she's been told that he has a mental disability and he need, needs to be checked out. He has no lawyer there who can bring the records in. He does the best he can as a uh, young person to explain what he remembered. But at that point, she should have stopped and tried to get at least the records of whether or not he had been medicated and whether he need, needed the medication. This also sheds some light on what the state brought out at the beginning of the hearing, a detention officer 
is called in and as the state correctly said, he says there are no behavior problems. Well, if you look at what George, Judge Gorham's, um, Judge Gorham found when Kashan was sent for reevaluation at Central Hospital, there were problems at the New Han Hanover County Jail. They found that he was having nightmares, uh, that he had become suspicious of people, thought people were following him, began to not trust people. And the people in charge of mental health at New Hanover County Jail thought this was so serious that they medicated him. So while this one officer on April 23rd might have testified there were no problems, the jailhouse records that were uh, obtained by the psychiatrist at Central Hospital shows that that is not accurate. They were having problems, problems serious enough, serious enough that they needed to be medicated. So in conclusion, I would just like this court to remember Kashan Harbin was a 17-year-old at the time of his arrest. Arrest, he did everything he could, given his capabilities, to prepare for trial. He had not been warned that his behavior would end up in forfeiture. In fact, Judge Watson had told him nothing he had done to that point would result in forfeiture. And Judge Watson had also told him that if at any point he wanted standby counsel to become first chair, that would happen. Given these assurances and orders by Judge Watson, given Kashan's Harvin's obvious attempt to prepare as best as he could, given the circumstances of a teenager in a jail cell dealing with boxes and boxes of discovery under Simpkins, there is no evidence that Kashan Harvin was obstructive or that his intent was to delay the trial. Thank you very much. If you have no further questions, I. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Um, I want to start. I want to start by um, talking a little bit about counsel's reference to the hearing on December 12th um, of 2017 with Judge Watson. Counsel mentioned that the defendant had not been warned that his behavior would result in forfeiture and that actually he was assured that he could sort of reinstate standby counsel at any time. And I think the majority alluded to this too. However, um, if you look at the transcript from December 12th of 2017 on page four, um, it is correct that the trial court at that time stated the, to the defendant that he had not forfeited his right to counsel at that time on December 12th of 2017. That is correct. Um, what, what Judge Watson did not give the defendant was any assurances that he could reinstate standby counsel at any time. In fact, what he says on page four is that at any point in time, if you chose to then request standby counsel to be made first chair, then that would put you in the position to have to speak to another judge about that at the appropriate time. And so I would argue to the court that that's certainly not indicative or giving any assurances in any way to the defendant that he can just 
make his standby counsel first chair whenever he wants to. Um, it, as the text suggests, it states that you will have to talk to another judge about that at that time, which is exactly what happened four months later when the defendant had that subsequent conversation with Judge Gorham. I also just want to touch on the related point. The def, um, defense counsel contends that under Blakeney and under the case law that there has to be some kind of warning before a defendant can be found to have forfeited his right to counsel. Um, that's certainly not part of the case law. That's not part of the analysis. The cases that talk about that were cases, as I mentioned earlier, where the defendant had not expressed a desire to represent himself at trial at all. Um, and so certainly that would be relevant there. There's certainly without saying it's a, without saying that a warning is a definite requirement. There are certainly indications in cases that whether a warning was given is relevant. Isn't that right? That that's correct, Your Honor. And and I would argue to the court that those cases are the ones where defendant had never expressed a desire to represent himself at all. Um, and so that that is where it would be more relevant. Um, it would be relevant for a trial court to to advise a defendant about the consequences and, and that his behavior could result in forfeiture, especially when that person had never expressed a desire to represent himself. But that is not the case here. The case is, here is your contention in this case that the absence of an explicit warning is completely irrelevant. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Yes. It, I would contend to the court that there certainly was no duty of the trial court to warn the defendant, and it is irrelevant in this case because the defendant was already representing himself and he had standby counsel and standby counsel that in fact proceeded with him uh, and stood with him as he tried the case and who explicitly stated to the court at the beginning of the hearing that the defendant would not actually communicate with him. Um, and and to your point, Justice Irvin, you talked to defense counsel a little bit about the trial court findings. What effect do those have on the way we look at this case? Um, I would I would disagree with counsel um, in in the fact that the trial court finding the defendant has obstructed and delayed um, is not a conclusion of law. That that's actually a conclusion of fact, a finding of fact that is more than supported by the competent evidence in the record in this case. Certainly it supports her conclusion of law that defendant did ultimately forfeit his right to counsel. But I would also argue to the court that per this, this court's footnote in Simpkins that those findings should be afforded great deference in this case, that they are binding and conclusive on appeal. Um, and certainly the evidence about defendant's um, competence is not relevant in, in this setting, especially since um, the trial court had no duty to sort of uh, conduct any competency hearing or anything like that in this scenario. Um, certainly the ultimate objective of the trial court is to administer justice without undue delay. Um, and in this particular case, based on the evidence in this record, um, the trial court findings that defendant did act willfully and obstruct and delay trial court proceedings are supported. And I would ask that you reverse the Court of Appeals opinion. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel, and again, I want to express our appreciation for your flexibility. Clerk, 